A lifeguard shortage is affecting public pools across the country. The problem of child sex abuse in the Boy Scouts of America. This extremely tight-knit community shattered by gun violence. I don't want another young gymnast, Olympic athlete, or any individual to experience the horror that I and hundreds of others have endured. Closing pools nationwide is causing some unexpected people to step up. Welcome, y'all, to episode 15 of Staffing Safety Society. Today, our episode is going to focus on Black History Month. Mm -hmm. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Bagwell. Paige, today we are going to talk about an important topic uh, at any time of the year, but certainly during Black History Month. And we're just going to acknowledge for those listening in, you and I are both white. That's right. <laughs> and, and so we're working on this just like everybody is. And, and so this episode will be a bit of an introduction and a framing uh, for deeper conversations to come. Another one next week, actually, with our guest, Dr. Mm -hmm. Sterling Freeman, an amazing, amazing person, uh, right. but for conversations to come. And we're going to talk today about systemic racism, social injustice, and equity. And we're going to offer some data uh, to make this situation a little bit more concrete. And I also want to take time to make it clear that because of the systemic racism in our country, our communities are just not safe for all, which is why we consider it squarely within our mission to talk about racism. Our mission is to create communities that are safe for all. And as always, we do that by using data and trusting relationships like those we have with our listeners, mm -hmm. to encourage the changes to behaviors that are needed to ensure that all people are safe. Now, we need your help. No matter your race or your position in the world, change here starts with all of us. That's right. Yep. Beautifully said. So our format is simple. We always start with today's headline. And I regret to read this particular headline. I was going to read about Aaron Rodgers' four-day dark retreat. Mm -hmm. I'll have more to say about that at a different time. But today's headline is right to this topic. Aramark apologizes for insensitivity of school lunch on first day of Black History Month. Page, a public school in Nyack, New York, served chicken and waffles and watermelon on the first day of this month. And the vendor, Aramark, and the principal apologized that the menu was, quote, inexcusably insensitive and reflected a lack of understanding of our district's vision to address racial bias, end quote. As we'll discuss today, Black History Month is about honoring Black achievement, culture, and history. Hopefully, conversations like those we'll have this month will help folks like the Aramark team better understand the impact of their decisions. <laughs> Paige, what are your thoughts? You know, Kevin, as you opened up what we were going to be talking about today, you know, you said that your last little piece you said was like, ask for, we're asking for your help, no matter what your race or position is, it all starts with us. Like we all should be having a conversation. Right. I guess what my confusion is at no point, they didn't have a conversation. Like they didn't have, like, you know, how did they get to the point where at least the two people thought it would be appropriate, right? And so that it's disappointing because I feel like we're at the point where at least people know, let's have a discussion about what Black History Month looks like for our school, where right. that, how that relates to the students and what they do in the classroom, outside of the classroom. And so right. it just, I guess I'm just baffled that it, that we're still here 
at this point where it's like some crazy decision was made um, that you think is appropriate. And so that's, it's just confusing to me that that's where we are. I just can't imagine. And by the way, the original school calendar, you know, you look at school calendar, what's yep. for lunch mm-hmm. on these days, did not have that as the lunch. They changed. They specified. Oh, gosh. Thank you. So there was some intentionality behind it. That's what you're saying. You bet. In my, in my family, I've said this to you before, my mom and dad and I would be at the, at the dinner table and we had a little thing that would go back and forth. One of us would say, what were they thinking? And, and mm-hmm. somebody else would go, they weren't thinking. Right. Oh yeah. I've had that table. I'm in a discussion at my dinner table, not just with my parents, but as a parent, <laughs> right? Even my girls would have said, can you believe they did that? Right. So it's just disappointing that like even the simplest of things, like just a school menu has, is not thought about in more critical and uh, I don't know, empathetic ways. Right. But Unimaginable. We, we got a lot to dig into. Yes. So I think today we also want to say too, is like, we're going to be given some, some definitions and some language, but I think that's, we've said that all along. We want to be clear in what we think is important to know that is factual, um, that helps people understand. So hang with us as we kind of go through what some of these things mean, because I think it gives us all a foundation on to have really more strategic, in-depth conversations about um, race and race in our country. And so let's start with language today. Um, and of course, we have to acknowledge it's important to talk about it and it's difficult to talk about it. Yeah. Um, race plays a significant factor in almost every aspect of our community life. Racism is difficult to define because quite honestly, people don't want to talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, just as simple as the example we just gave, you don't want to have simple conversations around what that means in racism with racism. Next week, we're going to explore deeply race as a social construct, not an anthropological fact, but we'll discuss how it is a manufactured differentiation among people who are actually genetically, virtually identical, which I can't wait for folks to hear that conversation to, about how that was created, but also what that means for our society today. Right. right. And so powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Um, there's also a common perception that people identify racism as a disease, like, right? Like something you, I guess, would catch or have diagnosed with. We commonly think of racism as a disease. Some people have this disease, but not everyone. And the solution to racism is to find the people with that disease and quote unquote, like cure them. Wouldn't it be great right? if it was that easy? Gosh, wouldn't it be great? Right, a if it was just that simple. If it was, right, if it was just that simple to protect everybody from it. Overt racism does exist. Bigots do exist, but the rest of us are not overtly or intentionally racist. However, Kevin, we all still have bias. You bet. And we all live in a society that creates structural racism. So that's what we want to get to. The heart of it is like, we're not trying to point fingers of, oh, this person's a racist or this is not. We live in a society where structural racism exists. So we're all affected. So solution is not just to call out bigots or Although that work is not unimportant, we should call out people when they are in the wrong, but to engage in conversation and to identify where the structural racism exists. So to identify that, to identify and know where it exists, we must first understand what it is. So we're going to use some um, definitions today from a group that we've worked with, Racial Equity Institute. We've had some of our staff go through this training quite a bit. REI is a Black-owned business comprised of a multiracial team of organizers and trainers who are committed to the work of anti-racism transformation. REI exists to help individuals and organizations committed to growing equity in community and develop patterns of power in service of that goal. 
Uh, they released a podcast series called Seeing White, produced by the Center for Document, um, Documentary Studies at Duke University. So a great podcast for people to kind of make a note of. So we're going to go through some terms that they helped us define, presented in order of importance to an overall understanding of the dismantling structural racism. And so let's go through some of those terms today, just so people know where we got them from. We trust this source. They're factual. They do this research all the time. Right. And so let's talk through the first one. We've talked, we yep. said it a couple of times already today, structural racism. What does yep. it mean? What does it mean? Yeah. So structural, and, and this is just a, a part of establishing a foundation that helps us to understand because you got to understand before you do work, right? A good friend of ours taught us, you got to sit with something before you stand and before you walk. Right. It's so a part of sitting with something. So structural racism is a system in which public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms work in various, often reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial group inequity. It identifies dimensions of our history and culture that have allowed privileges associated with whiteness and disadvantages associated with color to endure and adapt over time. Structural racism is not something that a few people or institutions choose to practice. Instead, it has been a feature of the social, economic, and political systems in which we all exist. I want to give an example of this from history that's just yeah. probably has affected all of us. It, right. it affected the generation before you and I, Paige. Mm -hmm. And so let's just think about it this way. For most American families, their greatest source of wealth is the appreciation in the home they own. When veterans returned from World War II, many benefited from the GI Bill of 1944, which provided, among other things, low interest mortgages. In fact, by 1955, 4.3 billion loans were granted. But in more than 1.2 million cases, Black people were determined to be ineligible for these crucial loans. In fact, the entire vast new community of Levittown, New York on Long Island mm -hmm. did not allow Black people to buy there. Mm -hmm. They were segregated and disallowed from buying there. And it was at one point the most, the fastest growing appreciation, real estate appreciation community on Long Island. As a result, one of the most important sources of family wealth growth was structurally made unavailable to the families of over a million Black veterans. Right. Uh, you know, you're, it's a picture of what equity is not, right? Like, like there's lack of equity there, just such a picture of it and a real life example of our history. Right? Exactly. Structural racism at work. Yep. The next term is racial equity. Yep. So let's talk about that. I mean, just the example you just, we talked about what racial equity might look like. So the definition is it refers to what a genuinely non-racist society would look like. In a racially equitable society, the distribution of society's benefits and burdens would not be skewed by race. In other words, Racial equity, equity would be a reality in which a person is no more or less likely to, to experience society's benefits or burdens just because of the color of their skin. This is in contrast to the current state of affairs in which a person of color is more likely to live in poverty, be imprisoned, drop out of high school, be unemployed, and experience poor health outcomes like diabetes, heart disease, depression, and quite honestly, other potentially fatal diseases. Racial equity holds society to a higher standard. 
it demands that we pay attention not just to individual level discrimination, but to overall social outcomes. Yeah. I mean, that nails it. And your example, it's a, it's a perfect like line of thinking of understanding where that actually takes place. And, right. You know. and, and these are facts that right. people of color are more likely to live in poverty or be imprisoned. And we're going to go through some of that data in just right. a minute. But who would not want a system where there is racial equity? Well, the third term that we need to um, discuss here is white privilege. And this is a term that's hard for people to accept. So we're going to work through a definition. So white privilege or historically accumulated white privilege, as we've come to call it, refers to whites' historical and contemporary advantages in access to quality education, decent jobs, livable wages, home ownership, as we've discussed, retirement benefits, wealth, and so on. Here's a quote from Peggy McIntosh, who's a senior research scientist at the Wellesley Centers for Women. And it might help us understand what we mean by the term white privilege. She says, as a white person, I'd been taught about racism that puts others at a disadvantage, but had been taught not to see one of its corollary aspects, white privilege, which puts me at an advantage. White privilege is an invisible package of unearned assets, which I can count on cashing in every day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. Now, Paige, I want to give you an example of that. As you know, I spent about six months in 1997 traveling from boardroom to boardroom across the United States, begging for money to start Redwoods. Now, I was really blessed to be able to get into those rooms, but in not one of those meetings was there a single Black person. Not one. I just simply had access to capital that a black man generally didn't have. Now, I, I tell you, I didn't earn. I didn't earn that privilege. It was just right. granted to me, historically accumulated. Right. Well, and you had access to, to it. You also, there was no black man that had access of giving it to you. Right. Right. Like it's both sides of it. He can't get into the room to either ask for it, nor can he get into the room to eat it, to give it. And that's, it's just two-sided every time. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that we gave some examples, gave some definitions, but I think what people value is, okay, what does this actually mean in numbers and stats? Like, what is the data behind it? Obviously, you know, with my role at Redwoods and my history of my experience and work, employment is a, like, that's a big part of what I pay attention to. So let's talk a little bit about the data around employment. Um, and how it affects racism, Blacks in America. So Black people in the U.S. have had a higher unemployment rate for years. The current U.S. unemployment rate is about 3.4%. But for Black people, it's 5.4%. So, I mean, almost double, right? Significant, significantly higher. Right. Black Americans are underrepresented in high-paying jobs. The Bureau of Labor Statistics state that share of workers in management and professional occupations by racial group are as follows. So Asian Americans, 58%. White Americans, 43%. Black Americans, 35%. Hispanic Americans, 26%. So you can see that there's a line of, right. you know, our citizens of color and those that are not. And so that's hard to, that's hard to look at in black and white. You bet. Um, so people of color are underrepresented in high positions at large companies. 
Um, we there was a chart around the number of companies with um, eth- ethnically and racially diverse CEOs. I think this, the source was around Chris Holder Associates, kind of a staffing firm, did this research. Yeah. Out of 682 CEOs in the Fortune 500 and the S&P 500, 45 were Asian, 21 Hispanic. You ready? Seven black. Seven out of 682. Seven. I said seven. You can count it on two hands. Yes. Crazy. Well, so this manifests then in areas of finance, right? Black Americans have historically earned far, far less than white workers. In fact, the way it works right now, if you look at per capita income for black and white, per capita income on average, $48,000, almost $49,000. Black, less than $30,000, $29,500. As we were digging into some of this data, one that just knocked me out of my chair was the disproportionate effect that student loans have on Black people, right? We think of student loans as being one way of getting access to the education that breaks this pattern, right? Gives you an opportunity to get in the room to ask for capital. So if you look at the median household wealth among 25 to 40-year-olds, this is fascinating stuff. For all households, the median household wealth for white people, $42,000. Black people, $3,500. Are you sure you're reading that right? $42,000 for whites, $3,500 for blacks. Now, interesting, without student debt, so the difference for the first number is a little over 1,000% more for white people for black people. You look without student debt, white people, fifty, almost $53,000, black people, $10,000, still a terrible number, but 400% more. So you can see the disproportionate effect of student loans on Black people. And the last one that's huge, because we talked about how important it is to own your own home in order to begin to be, uh, build wealth, generational wealth. So Black people, in fact, are denied loans more frequently. So white people are denied loans 6.3% of the time. Black people, 15.3% of the time, almost three times as much. If you can't get access to capital, you can't build wealth. That's just how it works. Right. And I think everything we're talking about is how people create a life for themselves and their families, like work, wealth, um, home ownership, all of those things. So it's just this vicious cycle that if one thing doesn't click, then the rest of it just, it just keeps going. For example, let's talk about imprisonment, right? Black people are sentenced to prison more often period. We've got some stats around that. Um, for white, let's see, 30%, which is their 70% of the population. So 30% of them are imprisoned. Hispanic, 23%. Black, 33%. But the comparison here is they're 13% of the population, but 33% are imprisoned. Right. Like, so of, three of those times. That are imprisoned. Three times. Like it does, it, these numbers don't make sense. And of course, the worst part of that is it's also primarily black males. And so you think those that are going out and obviously men and women finding jobs, but you think of in charge of finding that wealth and buying homeowners, you need that family unit and you need black males to be there. And so how unfortunate that is that there's just this focus on them particularly in this particular data. So this stuff can be hard to hear, especially among well-meaning white people. Right. 
None of us is trying to be a bigot. None of us is trying to be a racist. But the fact is we live in a system that disadvantages black people. And we have to own that and work on that. And so, Paige, you and I like to bring data to these conversations, but we also like to bring solutions. And so most of the time, there are people way smarter than we are who are able to bring the solutions. Last week, after the murder of Tyree Nichols, a friend of ours, Dave Brown, who's the CEO of the Capital District YMCA in Albany, New York, wrote a letter on behalf of the YMCA African-American CEO network. And I want to read a a few parts of that letter because it feels to me like it does bring us to solutions and work. And we're going to go deeper on this next week when we have our conversation with Dr. Sterling Freeman. So this is a letter from Dave. The current state of the United States of America and even the world in many ways, the tragedies, the injustices, and the horrific loss of life that most recently we see in our nightmares in Memphis and the disregard of the humanity for all groups can feel impossible to disrupt alone. Please take time for healing and restoration. Like the Civil Rights March in 1963, the YMCA African American CEO Network believes that the, that the equity is in our actions. The Memphis incident, as well as the barrage of other traumatic incidents devastating communities nationally, give us more factual accounts that violence, hate, prejudice, and racism should not be given space in any neighborhood, any home, any community. We know we are hurting at the individual level and in every community. We prioritize the role of mental health at every level. Today, we seek to continue to ignite collective action to stimulate a direction to elevate and advance anti-racist, multicultural focus. The world we love and the organization we choose to live out our collective purpose in is capable of bolder actions. Now. As an aside, he's talking about YMCA's here, but he is effectively talking about every organization, every every community, every every community. Our YMCA history is grounded in elevating indigenous voices, beginning with the first black Native American and women's auxiliary in the mid 1800s. (laughs) Our goal is to learn from our bold past and revive and restore our faith in leaders, specifically those on the front line, to attack policies, practices, and programs head on. We extend our heartfelt sympathies to the family and friends, to Tyree's family, and others impacted by senseless violence and the killings of citizens and the disregard of humanity. Can you feel the pain and passion in Dave's voice? Mm. Quotes, Dr. King, change does not roll in on the wheels of inevitability, but comes through the continuous struggle. Mm -hmm. Dave says, you're not in this alone. Let us face and confront all systems of oppression for all people together. We are indeed better together. Let's struggle together. In solidarity, the YMCA African-American CEO Network. Wow. Age. There is no better way for us to get to the big finish. Right. I know. I mean, gosh, what a beautiful letter. And I know it wasn't an easy one for him to write. No. Right. Like those, it, he's probably tired of sitting down trying to figure out what to say in these situations. And so I think that's my big finish. We started today talking about um, like Aramark and a principal making a really bad decision on a menu. Right. And then we went into some really hard 
definitions and facts and ended with this letter of someone that is passionate, um, humble, right? But also probably just torn about having to sit down and write a letter like this again. So can my big finish is, can we all just see that thread of how difficult this is and just sit down and talk, right? Why can't we just sit down and talk? It doesn't have to be so, so difficult that we, we put it on ourselves that it just it can't happen. So I just hope that if we've learned anything from this is that it's there. We know about it. It's, there's facts around it. There's data around it. And silly things are still happening, but also fatal things are still happening. And so right. let's talk about it. I, I like that a lot. And I will simply maybe add a little bit. Uh, and that is the talking that we have to do needs to be informed by real data. You know, many years ago, Senator from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, you're entitled to your own opinions, but not your own facts. Mm. What we've said today are facts. They can be hard to hear. You can decide that they're hard to hear, but they are facts. We live in a community that is governed by systemic racism and we need to pay attention to it. And that is my big finish. Let's talk and let's ground it in facts. Paige, let me read us out. Staff Safety Society is created by the Redwoods Group. It's produced by Stephen Doshert, Melanie Young, Paige Bagwell, and by me. If you like the show, tell a friend, leave us a review. It means a lot to us. If you have topic suggestions or feedback, we'd love to hear them. Send an email to community at redwoodsgroup.com. Again, community at redwoodsgroup.com, and we'll get back to you. You can find us on most social platforms by searching at Redwoods Group. Staffing, Safety, Society is recorded weekly in North Carolina. I'm Kevin Trapani. And I'm Paige Bagwell. Thanks for listening, y'all. Thanks, everybody.